Do you spend hours in your head thinking about something that happened, could have happened, or might happen? Do you ask others what to do so you don't make a mistake? Welcome to the Playing It Safe podcast. I am Dr. Z, your host. I am a clinical psychologist, an author, and a person that is super passionate about sharing with you science-based skills to overcome any type of fear-based struggles. Who doesn't experience fear? Who doesn't play it safe? In this show, we will discuss how fear-based reactions happen in day-to-day life, how playing it safe behaviors look like, sound like, and feel like, how you can put into action solid tips from behavioral science to get unstuck from worries, fears, obsessions, and anxieties, and how you can start doing what works, what matters, and what you care about. Behavioral science doesn't have to be boring. Thanks for listening, and let's get started. Hi, guys. I want to start this episode by sharing with all of you one of my favorite quotes from Brennan Brown. Here is the quote. Wholehearted living is about engaging in our lives from a place of worthiness. It means cultivating the courage, compassion, and connection to wake up in the morning and think, no matter what gets done and how much is left undone, I am enough. It's going to bed at night thinking, yes, I am imperfect and vulnerable and sometimes afraid, but that doesn't change the truth that I am also brave and worthy of love and belonging. This is one of my favorite quotes from Brennan Brown. And with this quote, I want to introduce you to a recent conversation I had with a colleague and a friend, Johnny Say, about self-compassion, what's unique about compassion-focused therapy, what's behind our self-criticisms, and how we can learn different ways to relate to them. This is one of my favorite conversations. You will hear how Johnny develop an interest and passion for compassion-focused therapy, how he combines acceptance and commitment therapy and compassion-focused practices, and how he found his way by developing a kind response towards his struggles. I hope this conversation is helpful in how you relate to self-criticism and Keep in mind that this is part one of my conversation with Johnny. In the next couple of days, I am going to release part two. So please stay tuned. Well, Johnny, thank you so much for making the time to chat with me. I know it's 9 p.m. right now in London, UK. So many, (laughs) many, many thanks. (laughs) (laughs) It's my pleasure. And, you know, I'm I'm waking up every moment that we talk. So (laughs) it's a good thing. I appreciate it because this is the first time that I'm interviewing you in the podcast. Um, do you mind introducing yourself and telling us what you're doing these days and how did you get involved into compassion-focused therapy? Sure, yeah. Um, so I live in London um, and I am a, a therapist. I work in, in private practice and in the NHS, the National Health Service as well. And I guess my my journey with compassion is is a longer one, actually. I think 
really, you know, uh, to keep it simple, I guess I have my own mental health history. So I struggled with, um, first of all, panic and depersonalization from a very young age and, and OCD from like six years old and, and a, a lot of my younger life and then uh, social anxiety and depression. So I had a lot of suffering. And I think because of that, I was drawn towards some way of helping myself with that and some way of solving that. And I guess it led me to meditation and sort of meditative arts so um i began with with things like zen and and sort of more traditional practices and i was introduced to compassion fairly early in those practices um but I, it didn't stick massively i was quite driven pretty obsessive if i'm honest in how i was doing it i was practicing many hours a day and going on retreats and in a way i was trying to solve my my struggles and my difficulties and the compassion stuff was mentioned and and i practiced bits of it and i would come and go and come back to it and then later as as i kind of realized that some of the ways i was approaching meditation weren't so healthy they were a bit obsessive and a bit trying to to control my emotions rather than than kind of accept and, and make room for them um i then re- sort of rediscovered compassion focused therapy i uh, discovered kristin neff's work mindful self-compassion and act really was was a big part of that as as, as you know from from our discussions act is a you know i mean primarily i'm a, a compassion focused therapist and an act therapist you know they're my two main modalities so you know an act has tons of compassion in it so all of that became such a resource and it almost took the kind of obsessive drive off what I was doing, brought my practice more as something to bring me into life rather than pull me out of life. Um, and, you know, I, I got a lot from the likes of Paul Gilbert and, um, and, and, and other people within those traditions, their warmth, their humanity, their uh, kindness and, and uh, openness with their own struggles. So that inspired me a lot. There's a lot more I could say, but that's probably a, a kind of simple overview. Wow, there is a lot to say. Right? I have many, many questions. But maybe we can step back a little bit. If you will be talking to a person that doesn't know anything about self-compassion or compassion-focused therapy, how will you introduce that practice to them? If a person is struggling with harsh thoughts, I am a failure, I am unworthy, or I am unlovable, and they are curious about self-compassion, how do you introduce self-compassion to them? Yeah, I I think it's a great question and one that I reflect on a lot because it's actually quite, seems quite a personalized thing depending on the client. And I think some of the examples you gave there, um, you know, they resonate in my mind with people who are often very kind to others and aren't so kind to themselves. And that's that's one type of presentation, I guess. You're very good at compassion out and not so good at compassion in. Um, there might be other barriers, other ways it sets up. I, I think this resonates with with what, what you call creating a context for change. So, you know, that that how do we, I, I guess, open up this idea of compassion, how it could be helpful with the with the reason someone's coming to therapy what they're hoping to get and you know make that link of how it could support them i guess in that example of of the kind of harsh 
self-critic perfectionism you may be good at compassion out not so good in then i might start with that that um actually highlighting that um that misalignment with you know how kind and supportive someone can be to someone else mm -hmm. versus how they are to themselves so that asymmetry really there in that that compassion so just starting to 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 you know explore that as we talk you know to highlight as we're looking at you know what what thoughts and feelings someone's coming with and how that inner critic and that perfectionism and that that um the part that might turn on them and be less self-compassionate with them just to flag it highlight it and show that difference between the kindness then you know i might use some of the typical typical metaphors that many people who, who listen into this podcast have probably heard and use a lot of them but things like you know in that example the the oxygen mask the old uh, airplane metaphor of you know we've got to take care of ourselves to to take care of others um the two friends metaphor i like you know if you're facing a struggle in life and you have the option of two friends you have one friend who is gonna tell you you're rubbish you're never gonna do anything or you're not doing enough you've got to try harder you're weak you're gonna fail you know whatever however harsh it might be versus the friend that says you can do this you've got this i'm here with you how can we do this together what's our first step let's let's go for this um you know mostly people can kind of get that right away um, so I would do some of the metaphors, some of the experiential work, the kind of setting the, the, the a context of change, linking it to the, the goals and rationale, and then see how that lands really. Sometimes one of the things that I hear from my clients is that if I practice that hippy dippy think, I am going to become lazy or yes. lazy, or are you asking me to do mediocre things? So how would you respond to a person that says, well, are you asking me to be less responsible? Are you yeah. asking me to be less accountable for what I do? Especially mm. when people have higher standards for themselves. Yeah, I, the, the, you know, there's quite a bit in that. You know, I guess there's the one part of it where we can just language it different from the beginning. So there's there's no reason to use um you know softer uh, flowery language we you know in in compassion focus therapy we often use the example of the firefighter running into the burning building you know he's not feeling warmth and love and nurturing at that point probably he's probably feeling either very adrenalized and focused or mm -hmm. amped up or or anxious and nervous or something like that but the motivation is there so sometimes just the languaging and the framing and 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 showing that actually we're not talking the same i mean from the example of of california we're perhaps not talking about the same thing as as, as a necessarily a more spiritual approach this is nothing wrong with a spiritual approach and a lot of people will relate to it that way but maybe making that clear you know in in england in the uk we have the cynicism so people are kind of more more cynical about this sort of stuff like deprecating um you know we have the legacy of victorian stiff upper lip and you know strong work ethic in in some areas so we have lots of lots of um barriers as well in that respect so to some extent you know we want all of that to come up as soon as possible and start working with it don't we you know and some of it might be 
the psychoeducation part of, of, you know, some of the benefits of self-compassion for some people, the research that, you know, the benefits around everything from physiology to psychological benefits, the relationship benefits, and, you know, tying it into some hard-nosed research for some people that will work, mm-hmm. you know, for some, some of my clients that don't care about research, they're too busy struggling in their life. They're trying to survive. That's not going to work for them. Um, and they may have a traumatic background where it hasn't been safe to trust kindness and compassion. And so, you know, in, in that context, it might be more the slowly, slowly, you know, let's build this up. I'm not going to try immediately in session one to sell the concept of self-compassion. I'm going to let it come through time and through our relationship and, you know, uh, explore where these barriers come from in their history mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, look at the attachment history. Why, you know, with, with that example, okay, we could address that barrier. You know, you've been in California, you've seen a lot of maybe quite out there spiritual communities and ideas floating around, and and to you that doesn't seem to match up with with being caring and committing to something you you, you care about, the direction you want to go in your business. Well what I'm talking about here isn't the same thing. So first of all, getting rid of that misconception, you know, we're not talking about getting out the incense and wind chimes and, and, and doing, um, you know, sound baths unless someone wants to do all of that. So maybe, you know, getting rid of some of those misconceptions, just simply addressing them, Mm -hmm. but then also maybe looking at, you know, at a deeper level, what does this barrier mean? You know, what in your history has meant it's hard to trust, the concept of being kind to yourself, receiving kindness from others, you know, where has that that come from in the attachment history, in the, the school history, um, you know, in the messages you've learned. And then also that part of compassion, you know, getting rid of the misconception that compassion is letting yourself off the hook, you know, is that kind? If I care deeply about my work and I'm very motivated, you know, is it kind to just say, oh, you don't have to push yourself so hard and give up on it and, you know, go off and go surfing and don't work, you know, is that kindness? I I don't think it is. So sometimes you have to tackle those very um, simple tangents that people's minds go off on when they hear kindness and compassion. Yeah. Yeah. I I love what you're saying because I do hear more of these blocks. Mm. So I think unpacking them before moving forward. It's a very helpful approach. Sometimes I hear the words or thoughts along the lines of, I don't deserve to be kind. Yeah. If you hear that, how will you respond? Yeah, yeah. I, I think I would tackle it a different ways. You know, one simple level would be compassion focused therapy loves this idea of, of tricky brains. Paul Gilbert calls it tricky brains. And this idea that so much of our suffering is, is this clash between these old brain networks and these new brain networks and um, a brain that's designed to, to spot threats and danger and social danger and, and difficulty. And, you know, we didn't pick any of that. We didn't pick any of our early attachment experiences. We didn't pick any of our school experiences. Um, I think when I get into this area, sometimes you you speak to people who truly have regrets. You know, they've done stuff in their life they really do regret and they're having trouble letting go of that. So I think sometimes you have to work on 
the difference between regret and shame, Mm -hmm. you know, that we can grieve and regret mistakes and things we've done. But actually at that point, we did the best we could given, you know, where we were in our life and everything we knew. Um, And, and, you know, and, and, I also, at this point, I'll move into, uh, I, I love uh, our, our good friend, Russ Harris's approach to diffusing from difficult thoughts. So he has this idea of notice, name, normalize, function and workability. I, I use this a lot in this area. So first of all, you know, as we're doing here, you're noticing and naming that block to compassion. So I, I don't feel worthy. So this sense of I'm not worthy or perhaps shame, it could be. Um, and then normalizing it actually so many people have this in fact I had this you know I might do some self-disclosure and say I was so hard on myself in the past because of what I you know what I was going through and um, and you know I might share a bit of how useful it's been to change that relationship but so some noticing naming and normalizing there and then the function okay the function of that barrier is could be many things, couldn't it? I mean, you know, you know this super, super well. There's so many functions, but a common one is, you know, we prefer a, a familiar state of suffering than an unfamiliar state of growth often you know and i always link this to those animal studies that show rats will go back to a environment where they're electrocuted rather than risk going to a new territory where they don't know things so i think this happens in our mind we sometimes are scared of you know what would happen if we start being kind to ourselves yeah if we unpack this belief i don't deserve to be kind with myself there is so much more shame different shades of shame and regrets and we may notice how it feels we may recognize the emotion and then look what happens if i act on this feeling mm-hmm. if i can ask one what i have here from my clients is that they do have a collection of regrets they regret how they behave with other people how they behave towards the people they love yeah. um, so yeah. how you go through that if people have this collection of regrets yeah I think it's tough and I think it's something that that often takes time um you know in compassion focused therapy you know this is the kind of blocks and barriers to to compassion and sometimes that's described as that's the work in compassion focused therapy you know that is the main focus if we can get through that then we'll see a big shift in 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 self-compassion and I think you know, early on when I came up against this, because I, I, I'd done a lot of work to to really make sense of my own struggles in the past, and to to really just say, I did the best I could at that point, and really to make peace with that, and to go, actually, I couldn't have done anything different, and you know, I I was struggling with stuff that was out of my control. I was really bought into that, so it surprised me at first when my clients they struggled to get to that place because of these guilt or shame episodes, these, these memories. And so, you know, I had to, and I'm still working on it and, and, and working on this. And I think not rushing to try and tidy it all up and say, okay, we all deserve compassion. We all find ourselves in this crazy world doing the best we can. We make some mistakes, you know, uh, it doesn't help anyone to get stay stuck there on that pain. You know, what can we, how can we compassionately self-correct? Like in the early days, I would rush through that. Now, 
taking more time actually in exploring that those experiences those memories what was going on what was the context why the person was pulled to do the behaviors they were pulled to do did they really have much more choice and if they did i mean my own you know it soon becomes quite philosophical in this area because you start getting into how much free will do we have and and all the rest of it and that can be a barrier in itself with clients you, you get into that debate but my own sense is like when you're in those strong emotions and really painful place you have less free will and so you you're doing the best you can and maybe you regret some stuff okay we can regret that we can grieve that together we can just feel that stay that stay with that hold that compassionately notice what i'm feeling thinking add in some kindness and we don't need to tidy that up or do anything else other than feel that but then we do want to move into compassionate self-correction and how we make, you know, is there anything we could do differently now learning from that? And can we mend any of those relationships? Often there's a lot of misconception there, right? Often people are really beating themselves up for stuff that is, is you know, just so far out of their control and their blame and, and not to jump around here too much, but sometimes I find that links to early attachments where people have had to adjust to difficult parents by mm -hmm. adjusting to what, you know, becoming the bad guy, seeing themselves as the bad guy because they have the, these difficult parental envir environments. So they couldn't see the, the attachment figure as the bad guy. So they had to see themselves. So they're so used to blaming themselves. So sometimes I found we have to go back to that earlier attachment experience make sense of that understand that give a lot of compassion to those memories and those times and then that might free up you know if if they're not so much to blame but they're holding themselves highly accountable for something that was way more complex sometimes people have done stuff though you know i've worked in in the borough i work in in lewisham i've worked with young many young men coming out of of gangs and, and you know uh uh, you know criminal backgrounds work with people who've you know they've stabbed people and done all kinds of things like that and you know just to be with them with the regret you know and and just to kind of you know realize that in that place they had little choice actually mm -hmm. at that time you know the where they were and 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 but grieving it and, and allowing some space and time to to grieve and then you know then we're so we're at the function okay the function is if i stay blaming myself then i atone for some of that a little bit but do you really atone for it by blaming and beating yourself up and holding on to that you know or do we atone for it by doing something different in the present moment so sometimes trying to get to that that sort of post-traumatic growth you know how can we do something different now to atone for it rather than be stuck in that pain and that shame and that that guilt so i guess my mind seeing it as there's some people blaming themselves and that's over blame and then there are some people that tragedy has happened and they're almost two different things to some degree yeah i think an important consideration that you share is that it's easy to judge our behavior and ourselves for things that we have say or we have done but makes a huge difference if we can step back and look at our own history and put our yeah. actions in context with yeah. what was going on in our lives at certain time, what we knew about ourselves, what we knew about relationships and others. Our regrets may come from that place. 
Yeah. I don't think we can look at our regrets in isolation, but in the context yeah. of our history, which is hard to do. That's the word yeah. I'm referring to. Yeah. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, I will very much appreciate it if you will subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. And if you're feeling extra generous, I welcome a review on Apple Podcasts. Show notes of this episode are in the website playingitsafe.com. Make sure to subscribe to my newsletter so you can receive more tips to stop all types of unworkable playing it safe actions. See you soon.